Thought Lounge podcast. A Thought Lounge is an in-person formatted dialogue with three to six people on the topics they are most passionate about. This week's special guest is UC Santa Barbara's Director and Dean of Students, Don Lubach. Participants and topics include Andy Falando on conditioning, Barry Simonathan on the intellectual decay of the nation, Lacey Smith on are we all just living in each other's paranoia, Professor Lubach on Green Dot, Celeste Bean on Ignorance, and Axel Kramer on Art and Analogy. If you enjoy these podcasts, write a review on iTunes so we can keep making them better. For more information on Thought Lounge, please visit thoughtlounge.org. Enjoy! Alright, so the topic that I brought to, to all of you to share about with you today is conditioning. Because I feel like, I feel like conditioning is a bad rap for what it is. I'm, Oftentimes, you might hear somebody call it brainwashing if they want to brand it with a negative connotation. But I feel like conditioning is just a tool, a tool that can be used for positive purposes or negative ones. Um, and ideally, it would be, it would be uh, used in the way that I'm speaking in a positive way. Now, what I mean by that is, let's take... Um, Let's take schools, for example. Let's take K through 12 schools. Imagine if every year in every school you had students being conditioned to believe that uh, being um, that being sexist is wrong, or being homophobic is wrong, or being uh, racist is wrong. I would argue that that's great. Because then, in a matter of a generation or two, you would have an entire population of people who didn't believe that uh, it's right to to persecute somebody or discriminate against them uh, based on their sex, uh, sexual orientation, or race, and, and or religion for that matter. Uh, I think it would be a great step forward at achieving unity. Uh, achieving human potential, overcoming ancient barriers that human beings have struggled to overcome in thus far in its history. Uh, yeah, if anyone would like to speak on that, I, I'm open to that. I would wonder, in your example in particular, how does like how how do you make sure that you're not shutting down people's perspectives. You might not agree with, say, those things that you just put out there. You know, don't be racist, don't be homophobic, um, don't be, uh, what was the last one? Sexist. Sexist? Okay. Then, I mean, okay, To from my perspective, that is, like, a, a no-brainer. But there are certainly people out there who don't see it that way. And... Shutting down their perspective, like shutting down their perspectives, what 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 makes it more right to do that other than just like a logical argument against sexism or a logical argument against being homophobic, to say like this is the way that we're going to condition it? Who gets to decide? I guess. Well, I suppose if history is any teacher, it would be the dominant uh, groups that are that are in power making the decisions. I'd like to add into that, you know, based on like what Karl Marx and stuff has said about like how there's always a dominant, whether it's the working force or like, you know, the bourgeoisie from this communist example, but even in other ways, it's like, why should there be a, 
a perspective that we adhere to. Like, even from conditioning, the idea of this is good or bad, like you saying being racist is bad, we don't need to say being racist is bad or being racist is good. Why do we even need to walk into the room with the set definition in our mind that if we see someone that this is how they behave? Like the root of the problem is not the actual conditioning itself, it's the fact that we are allowing ourselves to become conditioned. Like if you know psychology, like classical conditioning is like what they do to animals, you know, to like teach them what is good or bad. Like you, you, and it's like us, even heat and like cold, you know, it's like if it wasn't for our body, like to another person who couldn't, like an animal that felt those things the opposite way, like let's say in the ocean, cold could be good for it and heat would be like bad for it, you know? And for us, it's like the opposite way. Mm. So it's like the very idea of conditioning, it's like a systematic problem that's not like anyone's fault. It's like the fact that we let past memories sort of jade our vision as to how we're gonna behave in the future. Like mm. imagine children, like they don't, they walk into every situation with like a glowing perspective, like they're completely fresh and all their view, you know? Mm. And it's like, that's the view we want to emulate. They, they're so innocent. Even if they have a view that opposes what the person's asking, they'll ask them a question. They won't mm. just like walk up and get away and be like, you're wrong, you know? Like in Congress and stuff, like what if they just asked each other and tried to become friends instead of, you know, just saying like, even if they're wrong, you know, like let's make each other understand. But that's mm. not the view of most people, you know? And I feel like that's more to do with arrogance than it is to do with like our society. And that's like a problem that's like within everyone. Like, you know, it's like really hard to understand the problems that like come from within. Mm. I agree with you. I think that ideally it would be better not to have to condition people at all. But unfortunately, everyone has already been conditioned to believe something. And so while I would not want to condition an entire population of people to believe something is right or wrong, it's already been done. So it's just a matter of um, minimizing the uh, impact, the negative impact of that that tool that's been that's already been used and can never be unused i think that more than conditioning kind of the root problem because what you're talking about i think is you know sexism racism it's kind of having this critical view of how things are actually happening and making sure that you incorporate that into your future actions so i think more than conditioning for specific kind of beliefs because you're totally right that you know we do i would say that our generation is significantly less racist than one 200 years ago i think Mm -hmm. it's pretty safe assumption but i think the more, I think conditioning people to believe in principles of like questioning how things are happening and how they're doing that, I think that would be, that could definitely be a positive application of conditioning. Although um, the, the definition is a little nebulous for me, so I'm not sure if that quite qualifies as conditioning or if it has to be more kind of concrete than that. Well, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I agree with what you said. I think that conditioning doesn't have to be or actually, you didn't say it. I don't, I'm, let, me, let me clarify. Conditioning doesn't have to be something that that uh, establishes a concrete belief in somebody. Like you mentioned, it could also be something like establishing, giving them the tools to think critically. I mean, that's what that's part of what schools do. Like universities, they teach, they help students think critically. They give them the tools to question uh, institutions, beliefs, Just life in general. Just life in general, yeah. Uh, So I think that a compromise, kind of like a middle ground between what you were saying and and with what I'm saying, is what she's saying. So rather than condition people to believe something that's concrete, you could condition them to simply think critically and to question and to attempt to understand one another and think uh, more rationally. Yeah. Uh, And I think that would serve the purpose of eliminating racism and all this other 
isms that are awful, yeah. while at the same time not resorting to conditioning. Well, at least not in the concrete sense that I mentioned originally. And just drawing from your perspective too, like not like bringing religion for the sake of religion, but like for the sake of the principles it sakes brings. The Eightfold Path that the Buddha speaks about, it's nothing more than a way of getting rid of the conditioning because he believes that there's no view. Like that's the core principle of like Buddhism is that when you have no view, then you're like completely free to be yourself. And like when you're free to be yourself, you're like self-actualized, you know, like enlightened and stuff. Mm. And if you are able to free, like, so all he's teaching, he doesn't have any beliefs. He doesn't say like, for example, like, this is bad, this is good, you know, like, don't marry people. Don't, he doesn't say anything like that, you know, or don't do this, don't do that. Rather, it's simply question everything, you know? So, for, for example, investigate the action of eating meat, he says. Like, you know, it tastes good upon the first taste, but he's like, if you, if you meditate on it and you think about it, then you sort of understand the long-term consequences, you know? And so through that, he's like, you know, a monk would renounce their desire to eat meat. You know, and so their desire to like, you know, same with like sexual gratification too, they eventually renounce everything. And so he's like, this is just the same type of condition that you can apply to lay people. Instead of saying that money is good, you know, power is good, like, you know, oil is good for whatever it is. It's like the values that you question yourself. What makes you feel good, you know? When you help someone out, like that sense of pleasure, it's better than eating like 10 cookies, you know? So it's like, if you understand this, a hundred people could tell you that eating these cookies and having this house is the best thing in the world, right? But, and you could believe that if you're told that all your life, like most people end up do believing. But if you understand like a life of altruism is much greater, like if that's a personal experience like you do, like many people who are selfless and live, you know, day to day helping other people, like they do that because it gives them a much higher pleasure than whatever else they could be doing. And so it's like, if you have that personal experience, I feel like that's like self-conditioning. That's like what you're saying. Like we need to have a view in order to like live our lives like fruitfully, like you can't live like blind because other people will like corrupt it for you. But I feel like the best teacher for those views is not someone else, but rather like ourselves. And so it's like drawing on yours, like maybe by teaching those critical thinking values, like people can develop their own core like values and morals to live by. Hmm. I agree with that. Yeah. Having your own um, well, individualism essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think people will be less susceptible to um, being manipulated. Yeah. Hmm. Would anyone else like to chime in on that? I think I'm thinking <clears throat> the term conditioning evokes for me things like diets and habits and like a an institution taking its values and translating them to a larger group through conditioning, a, like a like a exercise regime or something. Mm. And I'm thinking that sometimes that's fantastic and I can get behind it. Other times, and I don't know if you've all seen this, but sometimes people the herd follows a certain diet, so everybody has this book and they're eating nothing but <clears throat> bananas and pineapples for a while. <laughs> and I'm very concerned when when people kind of flow into a conditioning regime that might not be right for their body and their health and things like that. So I'm naturally skeptical and yet I see the power as an educator. I do certain routines with my classes because I want them to um, to have see kind of a pattern and I, want, I have certain values that I can't help but communicate to my students using some conditioning techniques. But as the condition, I'm very, very skeptical all the time. Like I'm not likely to follow a certain diet, I, as you can probably tell. <laughs> Other than a cookie diet. <laughs> cookie diets are good. <laughs> Especially when they're, they have those gigantic chocolate chips. I think for me, the whole thing that I keep thinking about is just um, clockwork orange. Ah, uh, yes, that's you know? the extreme condition. Yeah, that's like, exactly. And it might be extreme, but I feel like not and 
I mean, but then we can get into like free will and all that stuff. But like, just making somebody think a certain way to me, regardless of what level it's on, just doesn't sound like something I'd be interested in, you know? Like, even if it is for the better good, but then it's just like, that's the better good based off of how you see it. You know, maybe it's not the better good for somebody else. Yeah, who gets to decide the moral compass? Exactly. Because I don't know, I mean, there's Voltaire's quote about, you know, defending to the right. I couldn't quote it if I tried. Um, <laughs> but in some ways, you know, I, as much as I like to think that I'm not a racist, I would rather have people be able to be racist and not have the opportunity to have their own opinion mm. in some ways. So. I mean, that's like the whole thing on the first Racism part. is still there. <laughs> that's like the First Amendment, right? Good and bad always, right? Expression. All right, thank you. Um, sometimes in Thought Lounge, we uh, instead of clapping or snapping for people, we like knock on the table. Oh, just put the mic. Just we're all doing it at the same time. Sound like an earthquake on the mic. Yeah. <laughs> at least we're in California, so it's pleasurable. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Somebody you'd like to go next? I'd like to go next. All right. Okay. Cool. So uh, I'd like to talk about the intellectual decay of the nation and the, maybe the globe as a whole too. Um, com- and so I bring this up not because intellectual decay is something that is so objective that we can pinpoint that people are you know viewing things with less of a discerning eye, but rather the fact that we're in the time where we have more information than ever before. We're in an ever-expanding globalization, globalized economy, and internet is connecting like people all across the world that never had information before. So while the majority of the world is getting access to these things, for example, third world countries and developing areas, they're now getting access and we're seeing insane booms in technology and production from them, China, India, you know, all of these countries now. You know, even Russia, they're, they're coming back up with their new industries and in oil and stuff. But America and stuff like that, it seems like despite all of our technological innovations that really come from America and they're benefiting the rest of the world, the majority of our country seems to be decaying in how we carry ourselves out. You know, we were just seeing the Flint crisis. There's water that's, you know, been contaminated for over a year and it would have cost over just less than $100 a day to fix this. Like, this is ridiculous. You, you, and the fact that people do not discern, I think it's the, the lack of discernment is what I'm ultimately getting to. The fact that People are not even thinking to question and challenge these people. And even after finding out that such atrocities are committed, the people in charge are not being held to the same standards as other criminals who would be. Like if we had someone drop like cyanide powder into a water stream, let's say like, you know, really poison a, people, a group of people, he would be tried as a criminal, right? And so, yes, this was not voluntary. It's involuntary. But the damage you caused still hurt a lot of people. And people have had, they've drank this, they've bathed in this. And so how can you let this go by? And this stems from things like the Wall Street crisis of 2008 too. If any of you saw the big short, you know, it's like there were such clear markers that the economy was going to collapse based on the way that things were going. So many people knew. And that's what I'm ultimately saying is that people know that bad things are going to happen, that what the progress, the train of progress that we're going on is not going to be somewhat sustainable. And so if it's not sustainable and you know that there's going to be an aftermath of damage, a grand amount of damage, how do the people let this pass? And why does it, why are we letting this happen? Like if the government is run by the people, how come we're not seeing really any retribution for the negative things that are really happening, you know, both internationally and within our country? Like where is the justice, you know? And police brutality, for an example, like we keep hearing about this, but 
it seems like you know in the past when bad things would happen like there was government action after a, a bit of you know complacency but even now it's like where is the action when is the last time we've heard of some major reform happening in our government you know so if anyone would like to chime in please feel free I totally have things to say um my first thing that I thought of was that sometimes when I'm about to make a bad decision and do something that is like wrong in the eyes of like maybe my parents I think it's so much easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission you know and so maybe sometimes these people are like getting their pockets like loaded you know and money talks you know and like it's I mean there's a reason why our entire world is run by it and needs it and um but then the other thing that what was it now I'm like blanking on what the other part oh it's um the fact that like we don't stand up for these types of things because a lot of people are just living day to day you know and they don't have the opportunity to sit in a room like this and ask these questions you know because they have to go to work and then they have to go home and take care of their kids and whatever it is and unfortunately that's a reality for so many people so I think that's those are like some easy answers <laughs> but like <coughs> Else I'm partially hearing you just say, why are we so complacent, we as why are Americans maybe, um, and <clears throat> there's so many distractions in our life right now too, and we're rel still relatively comfortable. I think people across the U.S. can go to a fairly warm place and turn on Netflix and forget about the world out there, so I think a lot of this same thing, the internet and inexpensive goods and services and stuff have made folks just comfortable enough where they're not likely to be... To take it's almost a luxury to look around them to have to be walking through the neighborhood and so forth and um, it's scary to me and it's scary and exciting that I think you take the Flint um, water situation people will I think they're going to wake up I think it takes a jolt it takes a, a natural disaster or a stock market crash to get people to wake up but on the other hand how quickly we go back so the, the financial thing happened and now we're just sort of putting money back in the same banks and it's, it's amazing. Yeah. So why are we so complacent? Um, and is it, is, it, is it all the fault of television? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I have kind of two, two interrelated questions. The first of which is, I think in some ways it speaks to an information inundation because you can just, I mean, you can scroll through Facebook and just, you have an overload of things that are both immediately relevant to you. If you know you have it curated so that you're looking at your friends, you can treat it as a news source. So we have so much information coming in that I think in some ways it's, I, I would think of it as kind of an empathetic decay, maybe even less so than intellectual, in that, you know, you have this massive culture of slacktivism kind of a thing, you know, I mean, the ALS ice bucket challenge, like how many people actually donated? Just because you poured water in your head didn't actually solve the problem necessarily. And while it is good that people care, I think it's almost a lack of follow through that is kind of the root issue and that because there's so much information around us I feel like once you acknowledge something you feel like you've kind of given it enough attention to validate it but that doesn't actually really do anything or at least that's what it kind of seems to me at least the term empathetic decay is powerful yeah that's a good I think that uh, that empathetic decay is uh, it links to what you were saying earlier about how people are just comfortable enough where just acknowledging something on Facebook and then going back to their lives, watching Netflix or what have you, um, 
is enough. They don't. Uh, they're not really affected personally by it enough. And, and that's that's an underlying pattern that I think people, of humans, have exhibited uh, throughout uh, history. If, if they're not personally affected, then they're probably not going to care very much about whatever is happening. I mean, there's that old saying, that old phrase, "out of sight, out of mind." Mm-hmm. I've noticed that to be very true, and I'm, I'll admit that even myself, if I am not faced with something, I can definitely say that it affects me less than when I'm staring it in the face, mm-hmm. when it's in my life. I think there's, like, that also ties into that is the fact that, um, like, this sounds really, like, sad, but, um, it, like, we are told that we, like, in the grand scheme of things, we really don't matter because we're just one person. And, like... I know that's, like, really depressing or whatnot, but it's kind of true because, like, look at the presidential election, you know? Like, does that one last vote, does it really matter in the, in the whole thing of it? But, like, no, you know? And, like, my, like, this essay that I'm writing, like, does it really matter? And I think sometimes I get caught up in that of, like, yes, I'd love to help and I want everybody to, like, be as happy as the next but sometimes it's like impossible to really do that and sometimes you just have to pick your battles I would say the, the opposite I feel like the fact that you're one person that's like the greatest liberation like you have the deciding power to you know you it's potential like obviously you don't know your vote is going to decide the presidential election but if it is yours and you'll never know it's like the Powerball ticket you know but that's the that's the, 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 the fact that you're on the clip you know you're making the decision and so and you're, you're obviously fighting this wall, like it's a war, right? And so it's like, if you're like, let's say you're in a Super Bowl and all that matters is the number of people that show up uh, to support a side. And so the fact that you just go and support that side, you, you potentially help them win, right? So the fact that you potentially help your ideology, like, you know, win is like a gratification for a lot of people. And I think that should be a gratification for a lot of people. And it's your future of your country, not like something that doesn't matter, like football, you know, like... To be honest, like compared to the national election, people should be giving a lot more election. I mean, attention, in my opinion. But um, but like you said, it's not what entertains people all the time. So I do understand the pragmatic uh, reasoning for all of that. Yeah. I totally agree yeah. with you. I actually just made a personal. Well, I tried to make personal choice. I was like deciding on becoming vegetarian, and um, my reasons were environmental. And in my mind, I was just like, well. In the grand scheme of things, like, me not eating a cheeseburger every day, like, yeah, it does help, but it's not going to solve anything. Mm-hmm. But then I finally, I actually, in a thought lounge, used it as my topic, and everyone helped me decide that, like, regardless, I'm it matters to me, so therefore it's important. Sorry, you were saying? Yeah. Oh, I am too. <laughs> I'm, well, I was for, like, three weeks, and we're then I just cut it down. Yeah, we're all works in progress. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Yeah, and I think that it's a multi-fat, I think change, uh, establishing change and initiating progress and keeping progress going is a, it's more than, than the weight you carry as an individual and even as a collective force. I think that, that when you, when you attempt to change when you attempt to make changes, it's the types of changes that, that really matter. Take um, our government, for example. Uh, the presidential election, right? I mean, I think it's, a, it's an unspoken fact that candidates that 
aren't Democrat or Republican, don't the independent candidates, uh, socialist candidates, for example, I believe Bernie Sanders is socialist, right? He's, He's running, running as Democrat. Democrat. He's running as Democrat. I think that supports my point. If he ran as socialist, not under the Democratic Party, how likely is it that he would win? I don't think it's very likely if he didn't. Well, it's impossible. I mean, right. when in the history of America have you seen a third party candidate? Can exactly. On that? It's, the, it's the political system that we have here where basically we have, they're called single member plurality districts, and basically to win you just have to have the most. So you end up with a two-party system that we see here and in the UK. Sorry if I'm being a little too quality. I thought that was a really interesting point that I learned yeah. that because we have that type of system here and in Britain, you basically end up with these two-party systems where since you get, have to get the majority, you don't, or not the majority, you have to get the most, you don't really have these small independent groups, you know. Um, whereas if you look at Italy or Israel or technically Russia, you, it's um, proportionally distributed. So we don't have, they don't have the electoral college the same way we do. So it's, it's a big reflection of what I think is a very outdated um, political system. Mm. Sorry to comment through that. Oh, no, I, I actually love to hear more about that. What is um, what, what do you mean by proportional, and, and what do they have in place with the electoral college? We're getting into details where I, I'm not so late confident, but mm-hmm. I would say ask Wikipedia. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my uh-huh. hmm? that was a good response. <laughs> My the underlying point was, I, and I think you supported, is structural change. I'm gonna finish with that. Sure. Uh, structural change, I think, is necessary. The bipartisan system, the electoral college, it's, I think, a, an outdated model based on elitism that this country was founded on. I mean, it's no secret that back when this country was founded, it wasn't, it wasn't the people that, the, the, most of the common people that that had to say it was the people who could vote back then, and people who could vote back then were elite. And I, as, lo- as, as much as I'd like to believe that's changed, uh, there are a lot of structural foundations that still remain from that elitist time that, that inhibits this country's ability to uh, fulfill its potential as a truly democratic nation. Do you have any sort of concluding thought that you'd like to leave with? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so from all that, I thought that was a very good uh, analysis of how Information, while it skyrocketed, has led us to inundation with how we actually react slacktivism. Um, but I think moving forward, I, I think we need to develop a way to make intellectual conversation like this more interesting. I think Thought Lounge is you know, one way that it's like this. And I think if more people spend time just talking rather than doing activities that you, know, you kind of never have your mind really in the front of you, if we did maybe just spend more of our time, that could make you know, a huge change in how we discuss these topics. Thank you. All right. That's great. I'll go next. Okay. Um, Page. <laughs> you want this paper? No, I'm good. I I just like... Yeah, I'm good. Um, thank you, though. So, I don't know. Uh, mine is based off of... So, there was this quote from a TV show that uh, called Mr. Robot that just like was nominated for a ton of Golden Globes, and, um, I, I, has anybody watched it, or, like, know anything about it? Um, so, basically, it's just, like, it just, like, messes with your mind, but, um, there's, um, in one of the episodes, the main character, he is, so he's schizophrenic, um, but he's, like, and he's also has an addiction problem, and, um, 
to meth. He's addicted to meth. And so um, he, like, sees... So you would, like, slowly find out that he's schizophrenic and all these things. Sorry for, like, ruining it for you, but, like... <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, he just... So you know that he has, like, these mental issues going on that he really can't control and, like, he has the addiction and all this stuff. But um, one of the things basically that the TV show focuses around is, like, kind of paranoia. And in... Um, in like one of the episodes he says that we're all just living in each other's paranoia and it made me think about it and it's like i i don't know if i agree with that or not so that's my question for all of you do you agree um that we're all just living in each other's paranoia when you say living in each other's paranoia what exactly do you mean just like our day-to-day like our choices um the things that we do um like like going to college and making the decisions that we do of like maybe getting a job, maybe taking this class over another one. It's like all dependent maybe on on the world and like if you're paranoid that if you don't go to college then you're not gonna get a job and you're not gonna be able to like buy a house and then you're not gonna be able to have a family and like mm-hmm. or however you want it like interpret it really. Ties in perfectly the last two yeah. discussions. Mm-hmm. It's like I think living basically you're propagated by fear and it's like that we're doing everything for like the sake of other people in the sense that if we don't do this then it's like this bad thing will happen which obviously is like you know the source of our paranoia is our fear and I feel like I don't know if that's necessarily other people's paranoia though because I feel like paranoia is like a very personal thing meaning that you fear that like people like if you walk down a street and like you're really conscious about how you look then like you're gonna like everyone that like casts you a glance you're gonna like think them twice like what there was going on in their mind right but to most people who don't care or like most people who don't care will just like walk by and they just keep work thinking about their goal on mind right so it's like to those people like they're not living with their paranoia so it's like I feel like it's very fear specific like and in the same way if you're scared of spiders like if you're walking in a forest like you're gonna be looking for spiders as you walk right so it's like you're obviously being driven by your paranoia but I feel like if you can erase as much of your paranoia as possible then you can live like more peaceful life maybe and so people who are really scared just are really like timid and you know always anxious and so maybe you're right like you know we have a lot of paranoias but like the goal of life is to really overcome our fears do you think um so part of it that i think of is like just the media you know how it controls us so much and there's gotta be I feel like paranoia is part of the equation is why it's so successful and why a lot of just like different businesses are so successful. Um, like I, what comes to mind is just like modeling agencies, you know, like the, the fear that you're not going to like look and be beautiful and, and like be attractive to your fellow humans, you know, and, and like that's just thrown at us all the time and how it's something that like, do you just not watch it, or do you... I guess it goes back into just thinking critically about what we're seeing and, like, how we're living. But. I would agree. Yeah. It's... Um, it. What you said about Buddhism earlier, it was Buddhism, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, about having a clear mind. I absolutely agree with that. I'm not a Buddhist myself, but I, I agree with that, that uh, ideal, that in order to overcome... Fear in order to, in order to uh, not be concerned with with not with uh, not being accepted or deemed beautiful by your fellow humans, like those models in the commercials. You have to think critically enough, be introspective enough to know that that fear exists and why it exists, 
And if you do that, then you can say to yourself, I mean, you can never remove fear completely. As human beings, we that's just a part of how we are... Uh, our brain's wired. Our, our brain's wired. Yeah, human beings feel fear. That's an emotion that we have, and there's no removing it. But emotions like fear can be, um, for lack of a better word, uh, regulated. If you can acknowledge to yourself, I feel insecure when I saw... I felt insecure when I saw that attractive person on TV, but you know what? I'm not going to live my life like I'm not beautiful, like I'm not attractive to other people. I'm not going to let that affect my mind. Mm -hmm. That's like such a hard thing to do. Is it realistic? Is that something that like... Well, I think going to your model situation about like seeing the TV ad and then saying, should I see it or should I just like be okay with it? And I think that's like a really personal thing that like if you're comfortable enough with your body, like if you're, you could be even better looking than the model, like it's possible, right? And then to that person, the model's like, they're, they're going to criticize the model, right? And to someone who's obviously worse looking according to society standards, they're going to feel conscious maybe, you know? But if you're so comfortable with your body, and like he says, like, if you recognize, like, let's say you have a goal of looking really fit, maybe, like, you actually aspire to look like a model who might be your model, you know? And in that situation, you recognize that you want to be like them. Like, if you want to get fit and then, like, you know, want, or, like, if it's a sports star, you want to play as well as them, then that's a fair goal. And you recognize the fear that every time you see someone better, that's because you, you're not that good. You recognize that. But I think if you come to terms with that fear that it's there, then, like, that's the ultimate, like clarity like you know you're able to see like yes I'm scared but like when I realize that the fear is not real then it's like I get like released from it and I think is that that's like kind of what you were saying along the same lines yeah. yeah I have a slightly different angle as a father I have a lot of fears and I try to come to terms with them yeah. and I try to not transfer them to my kids if I try to be as mindful as possible and my partner would say I don't always do a great job but I'm <laughs> terrified of earthquakes which is not good for a person born in California. <laughs> um, so I try to channel that fear into uh, I, my, my family still, even though my daughters are teens now, we have disaster drills at home. They know how to use a fire extinguisher. Mm -hmm. so, so I try to, instead of just freak out, just to prepare and try to be as calm as possible. But it's very easy as a parent to transfer all of your fears to your offspring. So living in each other's paranoia could also be riff like we yeah. we are, are uh, taught to be afraid and often by our parents. Oh yeah, totally. My parents, before I studied abroad, I went to Chile. And before I went, my dad gave me two conditions to be able to go. And um, one of them was silly, but the, but the other one was to take um, a self-defense class before going because he was afraid of something that he didn't know, you know, of like another country. And um, yeah, and like that paranoia, like it came down to me. So while I was abroad, I like made sure that I was in a good state of mind all the time, you know, um, because he <laughs> made me paranoid <laughs> about it. Yeah, so I agree. For for me, paranoia, and I think a really powerful part of paranoia, isn't necessarily just something as like explicit or um, not obvious, but like as you know, you see a model and you're paranoid that you're not good looking enough. The media says that X Y Z is going to go wrong, and so you're worried about it. It's sort of an underlying nagging emotion, maybe, and I think that this presents itself in communities uh, on on all levels. For example. 
at Cal. Um, I went to school at Cal and I felt from day one, this sort of like underlying anxiety, you know, am I going to get good enough grades? Am I the, am I doing if basically at Cal, what it feels like is if you're not both take doing like a double major and participating in a bunch of clubs and physically like active and have like a hobby that you just do all the time in your free time, then you're kind of like, like, Oh wait, what are you doing? It's like, why are you, nobody's just able to like, or people are the people who are very aware. Nobody's able to just relax. Whereas at UCSB, I come here and I feel like people are much more able to be focused in a, in a certain sense. They're able to say, they're able to say when somebody says, Hey, what are you doing tonight? They're able to go, nothing. And nobody like questions that. But anyways, um, so the paranoia that I'd say that really affects people's lives deeply in their psyches is, is that one, those underlying nagging emotions. Oh, they might be different at different places. Yeah, it's just, I think in Berkeley, it's just the fact of fitting in, you know, of like that paranoia of not fitting in, which is something that's so funny because we all want to be individual and we all want to be our own self, but at the same time, we don't want to be like too weird, you know? Um, and so I think that's probably why it is like here at Santa Barbara, it attracts certain kind of like vibe, you know? And so that's kind of how it goes. And people kind of go, go along with it too. Yeah, totally. So, you know, you come, you come into a place and you automatically get soaked into this, like you call it vibe, you know, <laughs> same with cow. Cow's got a vibe and uh, thought lounge has a vibe. And that kind of reinforces the quote, <clears throat> living inside each other's paranoia is kind of getting on that wavelength of either insecurity or. Yeah. It's a negative, yeah. it's a negative yeah. vibe. Yeah. Yeah. But being aware of it, I guess being aware of it would be sort of the solution, like we're like you guys were saying. Right. I think one part, um, one last thing I was thinking about was the fact that fear um, and paranoia and like kind of how they relate is just how um, powerful fear is, you know, and um, it's like something that you can't ignore because it's been proven time and time again of like what you will do when you are like truly afraid and like how that like really changes like every, any type of situation and just like how powerful the powerful yeah hmm. I agree yeah and I like to touch on what you said about the fears that, that a parent has I believe that there are invalid fears and valid fears I'm, well I suppose it all depends on what the, that person's individual set of values are but to me, I believe that a person shouldn't be as concerned about what other people think of them as for their daughter's safety. Mm. I think that one of those is much higher, or should be much higher on the priority list. And so, naturally, I, f I, feel that, I feel that when you have a concern that's higher up on your priority list, it's more valid to be afraid of something negatively affecting whatever that is that's high up on your priority list. Like, like children. All right. Because of that, I'll name my next fire extinguisher after you. you know. <laughs> <laughs> Grab Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to conclude any, with anything? Um, no, I don't. I think that was good. All right, thank you. All right, who's next? I'll do it. <laughs> <It's on. laughs> 
So um, I went to a training today um, called Green Dot Training, and as a longtime administrator at this big university, um, I worry all the time about safety and security and reducing um, uh, personal violence. And the definition of personal violence are things like stalking and hazing and um, uh, certainly sexual violence. Um, and it's it's always bothered me. I've been on this campus since the early 1980s that um, that we are one of the best research universities in the world, one of the best places in the world, and yet we still, like going on outside around, there are people uh, mistreating one another. And I'm still optimistic enough to think that there might be a way for us to dramatically reduce personal violence in our area. And this green dot thing, which comes from, I'll hold up the poster, um, the, uh, the green dot uh, program comes from um, uh, Washington DC and some researchers and uh, high schools they've been using it with have uh, with pretty decent studies by the Center for Disease Control have been reducing personal violence by 50% so uh, it's this I'm just gonna quickly unpack the green dot idea and then ask you what you think about it uh, maybe this is a magical silver bullet a green a green dot bullet <laughs> and essentially and this is just from my training today um, rather than looking at a victim and a perpetrator the green dot says, okay, there's a victim, and there's someone who wants to harm that victim, but then there's all of us all around, um, and that we, if properly trained, and they, 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 they also, um, uh, the idea is that it's not very easy to be a bystander, but with proper training, we can all be great bystanders. So I'll give you an example. Um, if I had video right now, I'd show you the chip guy video which is a, a famous uh, story with a fellow who was uh, seeing two people being violent to each other on a streetcar in New York, and he didn't say anything to them. He just put his body between them, and he ate chips. So he didn't engage them in any way. He just put his big body and kind of <laughs> sat there eating chips, and then they couldn't fight with each other, and it de-escalated the situation, and someone wasn't harmed. Um, the Green Dot uh, method involves distracting, delegating, or be direct. So notice that they've got all kinds of things that are easy to memorize. A distraction would be, let's say that you were at a party in Isla Vista and suddenly somebody seemed to be taking a young woman um, away against her will. You run over and say, dude, somebody's stealing your bike. That'd be the distract, distraction. You can do something or spill your drink or, or something to distract the person. So my hope is, uh, and I, I want to move to um, uh, engaging uh, as a group about this, is maybe this is the solution. Maybe we can really, uh, reducing by 50% would help. And what I like about the idea, it turns us all into lifeguards. It doesn't say you're bad and might be a perpetrator or you're a victim. Somebody's going to come and get you. Um, instead, it says you are a, a bystander and you can make change if you do one of three fairly easy things. So I'm stoked on this, but I'm also thinking, you know, is this, is this going to fail as, as well? So uh, thoughts and then I have some specific questions. Well, I, I've been trained in a lot of different things in a lot of different ways, so I just feel like any time that I'm trained to be able to react to something is helpful, you know, and I like, I feel like I walk throughout my day a lot more confident after being trained, like, first aid and CPR training, you know, and just, like, knowing that I would know how to respond in a certain situation, and I think that it's, like, the exact same thing with this here so like even anything that, moves us yeah forward. anything yeah. will help you know I've had situations um, 
I've tried to get like same like CPR AED. I've done like a couple wilderness first responder type things, and I think the main, interestingly, like the main training that you get from stuff like that isn't necessarily the knowledge or skills. It's actually just the idea that, like Lacey said, the confidence that you can that you have the right to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, I might share a story. Like when I was fourteen, I went out. Uh, surfing, I had no training at that point in anything. And um, this guy had a complex partial seizure in the water and there's like 50 guys out. And so he's completely passed out, not breathing, just soaking and just breathing or not breathing in water, but passed out underwater. Only his friend is there trying to just keep him afloat. There's waves crashing over him, all this stuff. Everybody just circles around them, him because they don't feel like they have the training or the right or whatever. But every person there had the ability to change the situation dramatically. And in the end, it ended up being me and my friend who were both 14 years old, just being the only ones who had the wherewithal to just say, everybody get your butts in there and let's, you know, you throw them on the board. It's not like we had any training, but we're able to actually do something and move them to shore and uh, till lifeguards finally got there. And anyways, that's just sort of like a, a very explicit example of, you know, having, feeling like you have the right to do something. And that's what this gives you. Yeah. It says, like you said, you're the lifeguard now. Yeah. So you have to work with all this situation. It says you've all been trained. And when you said you had some certs, the people who work and on campus on the climbing wall and stuff, they all have these certs, which are certifications and they're very proud of them. And it's part of their culture. It's like, Oh, I know how to swift water rescue and stuff. And I like the idea of making this a big deal. So people feel like they've sort of like, (laughs) I've got my green dot or something. (laughs) I think that could, could put a dent in our culture. Have any of you uh, been at a place where you maybe did or didn't intervene in addition to Axel's uh, story on anything, whether it doesn't have to be a sexual violence or it could be... Incidentally, I have a seizure on the beach story also. Uh, It's pretty much guys having a seizure on the beach and my friend and I were... Honestly, it looked like he was being a little inappropriate with the sand to start because he was face down, so everyone was just kind of What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. Are, are you really doing this in public? Um, and then we kind of realized that he was didn't have, he had sand covering his eyeballs. Right. Um, but I don't. Know, I really like the idea of again being able to envision yourself in that environment so that because I don't know. I guess for you guys it sounded like you just got the confidence to act. I'm lifeguard certified, and for me, I really like. I need a little more help, honestly, it sounds like. So I like being able to imagine myself in the scenario. You know, you kind of come up with these circumstances and you know how you... A good way to react in them. It's nice to be able to draw on something. So I really like the idea of it. Although I am a little confused about the the green dot. Is it is it a button? Is it... The, oh, so I, I don't, what the, the yeah, symbolism? Um, what the, they started out by showing a map of UCSB and dropping all these red dots and saying that we've always looked like, oh, that's a place where someone was assaulted or that's a place where someone was hazed or whatever. And the idea is, let's stop looking at all these as negative things. How do we prevent them happening? And then, so they had kind of a fancy graphic thing where they changed the Oh, red so kind of make it an opportunity, yes. for, rather than an opportunity for something bad to happen, made an opportunity for you to stop something. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And giving people the very specific skills on, like, just call. So delegate would be, oh, this looks like a dangerous situation for me as well, so I'll dial 911 here or I'll get some help. Yeah. I think that's definitely right. For people that are bystanders, but I'd also like to just ask you about, like, 
maybe things we can do f- to stop fights from escalating between people. Mm-hmm. Like, I know for guys, like, for example, like, not even just guys, it's like, you know, everyone in general, like, the consent culture is really emphasized, like, you know, that, that you know, doing anything sexual without complete, like, you know, consent from your partner is not okay under any circumstances. So I feel like that's normalized, like, people understand that, like, to a good amount, like, right. so, in the same sense, like, what about violence? Like, because I feel like people are much more okay, like, ready to throw down, especially, like, let's say at a party at night or something like that, you know, right. and, like, two guys are there, like, and there's everyone watching them, like, you know, if we, the culture is right now, and I, I feel like it's very hard to change the culture of, you know, like, let's see them, like, you know, tough it out, like, this is college culture, you know, and it's like, you're, it's inevitable that people are going to fight as well, like, between, you know, consenting people fighting within themselves, too. Um, so how do we change that view of, like, will, or is this a way to help us, uh, you know, view violence as, like, negative totally? Like, even two, you know, grown men fighting each other is not okay, you know, whether it be a man chasing a woman or something like that either. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, certainly when, it, when parties happen and alcohol is consumed, then this stuff gets really sophisticated. It's yeah. difficult to do because people... But I like the points, like the three Ds are very clear. So it's like, if we normalize that into everyone, like if there's a fight, like, and then like everyone that's watching, like, no, like we can't let you like get into a fight. Like maybe this can emphasize that as well. When you mentioned the consent thing, I just got this kind of hilarious thing where you say, I think we would like to box now. What do you think? You say, yes, (laughs) check the box. (laughs) Maybe that's a consent thing could be extended to dude fights. Yeah, (laughs) dude fights. (laughs) I think you did touch on something interesting though that I think that it is in, intensely stigmatized specifically man on woman violence mm-hmm. and then I think a little bit more so woman on man just kind of the you know reverse rape right. scenario and everything but that kind of boy on boy violence right. is just you know I don't know <laughs> world star like that's just what I imagine happening <laughs> is just people start changing world star and that's kind of the reaction mm-hmm. but I really like the idea of kind of all Honestly, making that something that's just kind of deemed unacceptable, too. Exactly, yeah. I would like that to be incorporated. I think that could make a big change. Yeah, in my late high school and early college days, I was very bullied and also bullied, and it was terrible. Exactly. I can agree with that, yeah. yeah. My high school years were like that as well. I didn't receive help from bystanders. I ended up having to solve the problem myself. I think that one thing that this does um, really well that everybody keeps kind of alluding to, and even Andy, I think you explicitly said, is just like changing the way that we see things. So like the difference with the green dot versus the red dot of like seeing it as something more positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this is a good thing because it's kind of like an instant solution. You know, this is something that we can implement now that will have an effect now. Whereas something that you Barry are like presenting as like just changing the view of a generation itself, that's obviously not something that's gonna happen right away, but it's gonna take time. So I think it's really important to just continue fo- like focus on this, but also keeping that in your mind as well of like how they both, yeah. Yeah, it's good to have a comprehensive plan, both short-term and long-term. Like, that bully culture, too. Like, if we get, like, because, for example, in college, like, let's say, like, a guy's getting bullied, like, it's much less likely that he's going to go tell other guys, even his closest friends, that, like, I felt, like, threatened at that party last night, you know? Like, he's going to, like, if a guy even smaller, like, feels threatened, they're just going to end up fighting back, right? Like, that's just the way, like, things work. And it's, like, if we change it, like, in the long-term like this, and with the short-term by, like, sort of making violence less acceptable at all cases... Then it's like over time, like that person's like, no, I don't want to fight, you know. And people are gonna stand in to like be like, no, like get away from him, you know. And so being like, fight, fight, fight. People are like gonna support his decision to like 
back out of the fight instead of it. Today, you'd probably be seeing like something humiliating in most situations, you know, if someone backed out of a fight like that. So. I think that this phenomenon that you're talking about is going to be much harder to achieve than what Green Dot seems to promote, which is this like direct, you have a say in how this particular situation turns ends up happening. Because the one the, what what I'm what we've been describing a lot, which is super ideal, would be that it would become normalized not to have these sort of phenomena happen, not to have guys get in fights, not to have uh, it be okay to you know try to do something without consent, like total consent. Um, and they're long, they seem to be longer fights. Perhaps one green dot could start to stand for a few of those at a time, or maybe a lot of them at a time, and say, hey, if you support this, then you're supporting um, non-bullying. You're supporting this and this and this is like, I don't know. But yeah. I think that paradigm shift might be a bit of a different cause. What do you, what do you think? I just think there's a lot of potential. Like you said, yeah. even if you started off on the basis of there's threats on the street, you know, you're walking home alone at night and you're, you see, you know, someone about to hurt someone else, green dot, you know, you, the three things come in your mind, you know, what is it? Distract, delegate and direct direct, direct. be direct you know so it's like if people just know that like they don't need to think about how they're going to respond to helping this person right so that's the instant and i feel like that's a huge thing but then as this becomes more internalized and it's like we recognize it's kind of like recycling you know like the reduce reuse and then recycle like that's like the model they started off on but then like this it's evolved into this whole cycle of like e-culture you know like being green and like just being like positively you know helpful to the environment at all costs in the same way it's like Maybe this is going to start by reducing street violence and like, you know, you know, stalker incidents or like, you know, those types of crimes. And then over time, it's like we can evolve this to be a concept where it's like we want UCSB to be most peaceful, you know, comfortable place for people to live, not have any fear of like violence at all, you know, whether they're a guy or a girl, you know, in any situation, anywhere. My question is, um, is how is this going to be implemented here? At it's UCSB? very elaborate. I can't give you the whole thing, but it's, uh, <laughs> it involves... Um, Lots of people have been trained through a two-day training, so we now have like 80 people or so who are maybe 40 or so that are trained, and then they're going to um, try to talk to every single academic department on campus, and then every student group. So there's a there's quite Great a top-down, quite a plan, like. yeah, very um, uh, elaborate plan, and it's connected to the Green Dot people in Washington D.C. So. Wow. So I think it's going to be everywhere, and I feel pretty good about it. And I think that that, uh, that presence is, is key in in promoting the values and the, the goals of, of Green Dot because once you have once it's if it's present everywhere even if people don't immediately internalize it eventually they will. Right. Well, they'll be conditioned. They'll be conditioned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want to say one more thing, which is that when you do do vice when when you are in a position and you intervene somewhere it does stay with you so you're lifeguard certified I, I had an accidental rescue once in Hawaii when I was there with my family and there's a couple other times where I have intervened and I think about it all the time it's like how about that I might have prevented something terrible um, and I also have times where I wish that I would have said something um, um, and those really really haunt me so the the upside of having like even if uh, an increasing a number of our student population has that great experience where they became the chip guy or the person who saved a person who was uh, uh, yeah, out on the surf or something like that. That could really um, um, have an impact, I think. Yeah, I think it just makes you more present in, in general. Like after right. having something, the scene. Yes. yeah, like you recognize what's around you and because um, you know that you've done it once, so you can right. do it again.
And I like it that this, this green dot thing that doesn't say don't drink and you're bad because you might assault somebody someday or anything. Instead, it just says let's make the world better. Mm-hmm. It's all just positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. As a, this is sort of a little tangent, but not really. Um, basically, like I was just thinking as a marketing strategy because it sounds like an awesome thing to actually make happen and work. Just from what I heard briefly, it sounds like you're saying they're trying to go for this top-down effect. And I feel like that does work, but it's also good to have some like bottom-up effects. And I feel like this could be really successful if you, because like, for example, just you talking to me, I'd be down to be a green dot person. I'd also be down to share it with my friend. And that's the most powerful connection right there. Like I know in attempt to spread Thought Lounge, we've done zero top-down effort. Everything has been... I just did a thought lounge, it was really powerful to me. Invite your friend personally to come do one with you because you think it's going to better them and your friend trusts you. Yes. And, and your incredibly charming YouTube videos too. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's kind of uh, grassroots as well. Just like. Yeah, so that's just a thought. And it's not, it wouldn't take all that much effort to you know, figure out how to implement right. that. Yeah, I think the worst thing would be if students all felt like this was coming from the state of California or something people <laughs> less likely to jump in I agree I think it needs to be more like volunteer mm-hmm. type of thing of, yeah like conferences yeah. type of thing something that's always bothered me is there are professionals who are in this building and also at CAPS and Student Health who every day are part of the response to sexual violence and they do this they, they're paid to do this and they're professionals and they're good at it and they're amazing but how BS is that, that they have to deal with this every day while the rest of us kind of go about our lives? You know, the green dot thing, I think if we can make their days boring so that they're not just <laughs> handling crying students whose lives have been changed, um, that would be an amazing thing because they can do, they've got other things they could be doing. Hmm. And what I really like about this is the, the um, how personal it is, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of uh, I feel from a student perspective, a lot of the programs that I've I've heard of, um, not just at UCSB, but uh, th- you know high school, middle school, a lot of them seem arbitrary. You know, like they're not something that students care about. But this, I can say from experience, is something that I wish existed in my high school years because I was bullied, and so it's relevant. It's relevant to students and I feel like they really latch on to it. Cool. Ed, did you have any last? I'm glad I went, took my lunch hour and went to the Green Dot training today (laughs) (laughs) and then came here. So thank you. All right. Thank you. you. Sounded like you were excited about your topic, so I'll let you end on it. Sure. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Me go last. That's fine. So you go now. I go now. Okay. I could also go now. I don't mind. Um, so this is something that's big, vaguely ephemerally connected in my mind, so I hope it actually makes sense. Um, but so I'm taking this fantastic music class, and basically we're talking about pop culture and how it's informed by a lot of stuff. But a jazz musician came into our class the other day and just kind of spoke to us, because it was very impersonal, and at one point he said, um, don't believe you dislike anything. Which I like for his poetic benefit. I think there's kind of the immediate, you know, eh, you know, driving rules are kind of, or no, being able to stereotype things and categorize things is good at the same time. But just to kind of go with that, 
I realized also that there's, or at least nothing that I can think of, a positive way to say someone is ignorant, necessarily. Because, I mean, ignorant just means you don't know. But it has, I think, exceedingly negative connotations. And I, I, I haven't been able to think of a way to positively say, you know, naive, unknowing, something like that. Which has kind of made me think about the, I guess, almost impetus I feel to have an opinion on something a lot of the times. And I was just wondering what your guys' reaction to that was. If you guys, maybe it's just me and I'm a know-it-all and I feel the need to say, I kind of am reluctant to say I don't know. And it's something I've been working on. But do you have any reflections? I, I can say that um, I think that the key is not in <clears throat> making a different phrase for ignorance, but instead removing the negative connotation from it. Uh, that way when you say that someone is ignorant of something where you say, I don't know, or, or I, that's just, uh, I'm ignorant of that, uh, that way people don't, they don't think negatively of you when you, when, you, when you say that, or when you say it to other people. Because like you said, it's just a matter, it's just a lack of information. Uh, and the reality of humans is uh, no human is, is is um, not ignorant of something. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just it's just if you can make it apparent to everyone that it, that it's not a big deal to be ignorant of something, that then I then I think you'll you'll find that people will no longer care if they're called ignorant because it's just kind of you know an apparent fact at that point. Being ignorant to me has a connotation of choosing not to learn something, like. I'm, I totally don't care if anybody doesn't know any facts in the whole world. That's, that, that doesn't tell me anything about how intelligent they are, how good of a person they are. Um, but I, I'd like to know what, you, what your guys' definitions of ignorance is, because I think I'm, mine's just a touch. Yeah, I would say that, okay, so I guess I'll more concretely define ignorant as connotations for me is that it's very similar, I think, basically the same as what you said, where... You know, it's assumed that if you don't know something that you're not necessarily open to it. Because I don't know if open-minded says the same thing. And maybe I'm just kind of, you know, cutting hairs and splitting hairs. Um, (laughs) And it's just, you know, it's a nuance and it's just a word. But I guess more I was thinking of kind of the phenomenon of having to have an opinion on something. But, I mean, do you guys, is that how, how do you feel about the word ignorant, I guess? Well, I feel like the idea of ignorance supposes that there's a vast store of information and that you don't know all of it, which is basically everyone, right? Not everyone knows all the information. So like you said, everyone's ignorant of at least something, right? And so to that extent, I don't think it's wrong to be naive or not knowing of something, but I think it's wrong to have a resistance to not want to learn what it is when it matters or when you have the opportunity. Like, for example, like, if someone is like, you know, you, what you said offended me, right? And if you choose after learning that what you said offended them, if you choose not to correct your mistakes, that's true ignorance, right? Like it's in the sense that you've been told the consequence of your, your actions, but even knowing what you're doing, you choose to still do it because it's like you're more concerned with yourself. So I feel like the negative connotation of ignorance comes from like the fact that people who are ignorant don't do it because like they're like eternally like you know gracious or something but because they're more self-centered like for example like politicians who don't want to believe certain things right like does that mean that they're ignorant of those facts or that they simply don't want to believe them because they have an agenda that they'd rather advance right and so in that sense i feel like it's there's a line between like ignorance and then like just apathy and so going back to what you were saying about how you know 
we always need to have an opinion on what we like don't know there's like sensations like that only you can feel and there's no words you can put on them right like emotions that people make you feel at like certain times like you know the depth of what someone loved like these things are like indescribable so then with those experiences if other people never got to experience those experiences does that mean that they're ignorant of your experience like the subjective consciousness that you had at that time it's like you could you only you could experience it so then in that perspective everyone is ignorant of that feeling and if i ran around my entire life saying like you don't know what it means to like feel like this then it's like i'm nothing more than like one of those preachers that you see on the arbor you know that's like you know believe me or you're going to go to like hell you know it's like they have no credibility because they can't convince their idea so it's like i feel like ignorance and like knowledge all these things are based on the fact that we believe someone or like there is information but on the other hand i feel like information is like generated like we just come up with it you know so it's like if we can just come up with stuff to like what's the real there's no like substance to it you know it's like it's just there i mean we did just come up with the word ignorant yeah Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there is a beautiful book on this um, that we almost chose for the UCSB Reads book, and uh, a, a great biology professor, I don't remember his name, was champion, the champion of this particular book, but it's called Ignorance, and the TED Talk is also lovely. Um, and I won't be able to do it justice, but you were going the direction of the writer of the book saying that ignorance, like we cling to known facts and our constructs, and we're so comfortable with them, and the author is saying, those who can let go of their deeply held beliefs and go into the, the abyss of all the stuff we don't know, rule. That, uh, mm-hmm. that, it, it, that embracing ignorance and seeing it as sort of the way that Neil deGrasse Tyson looks out at the, the heavens is, is a noble thing. And he teaches a, a highly subscribed course, the author, on ignorance. So students gather and they just embrace not knowing. Um, so he's kind of made a, a poetic virtue out of ignorance. Going from the Neil deGrasse Tyson, it's like he knows yeah. there's space, right? right? But he's eager to explore it and learn about it. That's right. Like, what if the same person knew there's all this space but then didn't want to do anything about it? Or like, just said it was all... Um, yeah, like, I just want to eat my, like, you know, cookies in right. the room. Like, yeah. And that's a different, like, connotation. I feel like that's where, like, how we view people as, like, either lazy or, like, apathetic might confuse with being not knowing you know like Neil deGrasse Tyson doesn't know the entire universe but he's curious so it's like that's different from someone who doesn't care about it I think it's okay to choose what you decide not to be ignorant of as well because I'm sure there there are people who look at the heavens and go hmm that doesn't interest me as much as like this person right here (laughs) right Uh, I choose to focus my energy there Mm. but yeah at the same time I don't know ignorance I love I love that idea of, of staring into ambiguity and being being okay with it right sort of like being able to let go of the of of the idea that like you should just stick with what's known and the idea that you really know anything and then that's when ideas are free enough to come together and create something truly new out of that abyss or seemingly new. <laughs> right. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah I found that a lot of hmm? that was well said. Uh, yeah. I found that a lot of the time people cling to their constructs and, and facts because they're afraid of like what you mentioned earlier about fear of of, uh, of not knowing they're afraid of that the uh, instability that comes from that um, but I think that like what you said the key in in the key to the unknown, the key to being uncomfortable with the unknown is just just accepting it. 
just accepting that you're just accepting that ambiguity and being open to possibility. I've, from personal experience, I've found that I've, after I let go of a lot of the strongly held beliefs that I had as a product of my own conditioning and uh, egotism, that I felt liberated. I felt uh, like a, a huge weight had lifted from my shoulders. Uh, like I was looking out at the world for the first time. And I feel like a lot of other people, I feel like everyone could, could benefit from something similar to what you were saying. Uh, that, what was his name? The one who uh, does, does the, does the uh, ignorance course? What? Right, yeah. I don't, I don't remember the name of the author. The, um, yeah. the class is called Well, ignorance. that guy. That, he's <laughs> got the right. That guy's got the that right. Guy's got that, right. that was my interpretation of it. I could be way off. I don't, I don't know if I agree, though, with um, that idea, just because sometimes, like, like I've said, is like, we all have the privilege of thinking this way and being able to, like, analyze this, but I feel like in some people, for, like, some people, it's not practical to, like, look at it in that way and to, like, have the ability to just like really question everything and being like, yeah, I don't know this and like, that's okay. You know, whereas for some people, like what they don't know is something that they need to know to be able to like make it and to continue. And I just, I, so I'm like trying to see it from the other view. Like, do you really think it's practical? Something like this for everybody? Not all the time. I think there are some instances in which it's better to make an assumption. Um, like, let's say, for example, if you just knew that you could not retain your sanity, if you just released every single belief that you had and you just couldn't, you just, you just needed to have some kind of uh, center, then, yeah, I would agree that um, it wouldn't be right for everybody. Yeah. And then there are also just other concrete examples. Like, I'm pretty sure, you know, engineers who build bridges shouldn't be concerned with whether or not what they know about building bridges is really true, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, they're really unsafe. Philosophizing it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking of a daydreaming police officer <laughs> yeah. on the beat, just like, whoa. Is this ticket real? Yeah, so there's definitely a point. It's a privilege of university life in many ways. You get a chance to kind of suspend all those constructs. True, yeah. It's not that enough, that's why. So excited about that. <laughs> on, on the police side, yeah, actually, just uh, and in the work that. Uh, dang it. Um, oh, I don't want to go on just because it's my. Should I? Can I finish? My idea was that in certain situations, it's good to have like go mode. Like, we know the protocol. I am not ignorant, and I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. And that's a situation where it's like you, you say, like, if you're ignorant, just get out. Uh, I kind of I call it like open mode versus closed mode Uh, in in open mode it's sort of like brainstorm free for all mode like sort of um, not necessarily thought lounge but like in the connection section of thought lounge basically we try to draw these crazy connections and basically anything you say I'm going to be like that's a great idea we're going to write that up there because in the future maybe we're going to have a cool connection that'll come from that and then closed mode is like we know what we got to do basically and it's time to just execute. Um, I thought that was, and that was like the policer bridge example. Mm-hmm. It's a two-sided coin. Yeah, I would agree. Open, closed. Yeah, can't have one without the other. 
Uh, would you like to make concluding, have a concluding thought? No, yeah, cool beans. <laughs> cool beans, all right. Okay, I'm the last one, right? Yes. Ah, okay, start. All right, um, I want to see if I can write this on the board. I have two questions for everyone. Uh, first one is, can you see this? Not really. No. Okay, screw it, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'll just say them, and if you need me to repeat them, you can have me repeat them. But the first one is, where in life do you see something as art where others do not see it as art necessarily? Or where it would be weird? It might seem like a weird thing to look at as art. And the second one is, how does your art make analogous the thing that you're trying to convey to the viewer? Second one's kind of wordy. I'll say it again. How how does your art make analogous the thing that you are trying to convey to the viewer? So in in the context of like music is a kind of is something that most people consider art or painting. Um, the the way that you try to convey it is is through the medium of like the the sounds and the the sounds trigger emotions in your brain that maybe the something that you felt earlier will just resonate with them, but perhaps your words couldn't have done that as well. Whereas sometimes maybe with poetry, um, your words are the better medium of doing that, and those are the things that actually convey it to the viewer. So just give an example, just to start off of, because and I would like you all to think about your own, but I'll tell you mine. Um, I did a I did a math major in college. Uh, not because I was particularly interested in math or crunchy numbers or anything like that, but for more philosophical reasons. I was looking for a language that could basically be sort of universal, that I could present to an alien planet and they could understand it, maybe perhaps an objective language. I don't think I found that through math, but I did find a beautiful art. (laughs) And most people, I don't think, see math as art. Um, now, I, I want to try to explain why I see it as, as artful. Um, basically, one of the biggest questions in math is how do we take something that makes no sense in one space, in one domain, transfer it and all its parts to another domain where it makes sense, and then do like functions and, and think about it in that domain where it makes sense, and then transfer that solution and all its parts back to the domain where it didn't make sense, but it's still a solution in that other domain. So like, for example, maybe you have this crazy mathematical space of like matrices and stuff, but then you can simplify it to just look like three-dimensional real space. And I can think of the question that I'm trying to answer in the matrix question as just a matter of like, well, uh, of like distance in three dimensions. And that's a very easy formula, something that you guys have all probably like learned in grade school. Um, do the calculations over there. And as long as I have a way of mapping it back to my matrix matrices, then I can start to envision this. I can start to envision this other crazy world in terms of another one. Um, and I think that's beautiful. And I also think that something beautiful about math is, uh, is, um, just the simplest, the simplify, the idea of simplifying things until one little equation represents so much. Um, 
and I think it truly takes creativity. Like I'm, I'm throwing my entire brain at a problem. Everything I've ever learned is going into just solving this one thing. Um, so and the way, it, so that's the way it makes it, it analogous to the viewer. It tries to make that extremely explicit. I'd like to open it up to hear your guys, your, all your thoughts. I, I, go ahead. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Well, I definitely think I, I'm a physics major and I write some physics papers myself just some ideas I have and I try to put it in math and describe the phenomena as well. And every time I do it, I couldn't help but think feeling like an artist. Like, yes, we're scientists, but scientists are nothing more than they're looking at the observable universe and then making claims about it, right? And then they're writing these claims and publishing to other people. What do artists do? You know, if you're an impressionist painter, you're going to look at, well, you know, you're a natural landscape painter, you're going to look at a landscape and then paint it. So... If you're a scientist, you're literally just doing the same thing when you're describing things, you know, if it's like quantum physics and it's like at the lowest like thing that you could see, you know, you're describing in a paper, which is written in words. And so it takes immense amount of creativity if you look like Albert Einstein, how does he come up with the relativity and stuff like that? Like, you know, it, it took this many thousands of years for a groundbreaking breaking discovery like that, you know, that's more prize than Elvis's, you know, 1960s record if you ask me, you know. <laughs> and so if we think about it like that, then it's like, is art just the arrangement of ideas and like information in, in a unique way that makes sense. Like, like you said, you take all this information, you throw it to this other world and then where this other world makes sense. And then we sort of rearrange things and do all these functions on it and we present it back. So it's like, for example, with math or physics, you have all this science information that really makes no sense. Then using what you know, you sort of take all this data and then you try to assemble like a map and then you present this map to other people and people are like, Oh no, I see it, you know? And so in a way, I think that, it is art. Like, I think you could consider any action that is done with skill, meaning like it's even a sport, like, you know, shooting a basketball, you get better at making the basket each time. I feel like anything's an art if you like view it like as something that you can improve your skill on. Something, uh, a really cool question I think you just brought up actually yeah. was, can art, like you, you made analogous that how physics can build upon itself like yeah. over time and how many thousands of years did it take to actually get Einstein to right. come up with special relativity? Yeah. Um, perhaps, just taking it back to more typical art, could poetry, say, build on itself over thousands of years? How many thousands of years will it take us to learn how to describe something like romantic love? Or a, a precise, maybe maybe very precisely learn how to describe that for ourselves? I don't know. That's just a, that'd be maybe a question for another thought lounge. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that kind of alludes to, I don't know, I took German last quarter and I was so excited by just I mean, honest, I can't really go say that I went far enough in German in 10 weeks to really have an appreciation of the language, but just the idea of having these different approximations of something in your head. And I think that art in all of its forms, I mean, for me, it takes the form of a printed circuit board because um, that's what I spent pretty much all of last quarter doing. It's like making the artwork for that and everything. And it's just like, this is going to be a tiny brain once it gets made. But I think that literally anything where you can just make it as the most effective way to keep to uh, communicate something that's kind of stuck in here, I think that qualifies as art. Right. And, you know, there, you mentioned music as something that is just so viscerally emotive. And I think you have the same with poetry and everything where you don't necessarily have to analyze it. And I mean, that is obviously language, but it just kind of triggers something that is more intuitive than trying to describe it, you know, with words. Because in some ways they can just be bulky and not very effective. Well, the first thing that I thought of when you asked the question was um, <clears throat> one thing in my life is actually language that is art. Um, I majored in Spanish while I was here, and so I like really, really came to understand that. And then after going abroad and 
um, living in Chile and then like traveling throughout the country itself, but also to like Argentina and then other places as well and how the same language of Spanish has like so many different ways that it's spoken and the fact that like the Chileans in Santiago they kind of speak really fast and like cut off words and it's really just just like effective that's how they do it they're like I'm just gonna get straight to the point with this language whereas like maybe down in the south of Chile they're kind of like more sing-songy you know and it's the same language but they just say it differently and how like just language in general allows us to just be artists in like the way that we use our words and um, like you know. Can I ask you a follow-up question? Go for it. So would you, I would assume, completely consider yourself fluent in Spanish, right? No. Oh. But I I do I don't I haven't been in a space where I can like speak it oh. every day, so I don't like to consider myself fluent. I guess I actually wasn't. The, I was more going to ask a question of, do you think that there's anything that's just blatantly easier to say in Spanish for you now, or? Oh, yeah, like, um, really just, like, uh, negative things, oddly enough, like, um, kind of, like, curse words, you know, because, like, while I was abroad, I would say bad things in English, you know, but usually most people understand it, but then you bring like those slangs like those sayings back here and it means something to me that doesn't mean something to somebody else and um and so now I like have I appreciate it a lot more and so that's like the one thing of that does that answer your question at yeah. all <laughs> I was like, kind of expecting it to be you know, emotions or something but that's really interesting no it's really cool yeah I just like that you're curse words are very personal <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it's because it's something that like un, that I understand and Axel understands but like really not many other people will you know and it's something that's like kind of personal to me and it's I guess it would be like my own art I guess <laughs> and going back to your question about the poetry like how it builds on itself I think with music that's like a pretty easy example because like you could say like with electronic music now like you know, like trance and dubstep, like at its like peak, like with all the new technology that computers can offer, compared to like baroque music and like even before that, you know, like medieval music where they played on like the clavichord or something, you know. So it's like you've obviously seen developments. I guess technology and we had the capacity to make orchestras and we wrote all these sheet musics, you know, from like quartets and stuff, and then jazz and big band, and then now we have modern rock and then electronic music. So I feel like any art really does have a, a progression. You see, even in painting, there's and writing, you know, there's waves of like types of writing like transcendentalists and then the Roman you know, romantic writers and all these like things like that and impression types of paintings too so I feel like all of these things like it's just a skill and like if you do it well enough like baking cookies too you know there's like cuisines that evolve over time and new diets and stuff too you know so it's like anything I think if you refine it it just considered an art because there's someone refining it the person refining it must be an artist right what else could they be interesting but comparing um mathematicians and physicists kind of working towards solving these hard forever problems. Yeah. I, I can't, I, I get a funny image of poets together saying, Adam, you've done it. You've described love. You've solved the love equation with your iambic right. pentameter or something yeah. like that. So I don't see them kind of collaborating as closely yeah. towards these goals, and yet they are, they are um, well, they're continuing the... to express. Yeah. Yeah. Very provocative. That's funny. You express love. <laughs> yeah. I think it, the thing with math and physics is that, like, one of the reasons I was so attracted to it is the ability to state the question so explicitly. Yeah. You know, you know when you've solved it. Most, 99.9% .9 of the people in the world would 
agree that you yes you have solved that problem finally but when you try to describe love it's like the the problem's different yes it's different for every yeah so that might not be the question but something similar i don't know have we gotten you into the UCSB allosphere yet? Have you gotten the tour? Oh, the 3D thing. Is that yeah. relevant to this question? I would think that that would be something that would be delightful for you. Yeah. <laughs> the allosphere. The it's uh, a allosphere, and it's like a 3D projector, so all around you, you can visualize anything. It's like, a three-story globe that you stand inside of, and you feed your math equations to it, and then yeah. they, the math surrounds you. Wait, seriously? It's yes. amazing. So they were able to <laughs> visualize like a mathematical knot, which doesn't mean much to me, but I assume would mean yeah. a lot more to you. Yeah, um, not theory. You're standing it's on a catwalk <laughs> looking at it, the it, side of it. it. It was basically a religious experience just watching it happen. It was amazing. Can you, they do it at the end of the year. They do it at the end of the year, usually at the end of spring quarter, if you're going to be around them. So how do you go see it? Huh? How do you go see it? They do demonstrations. The whole the media and arts technology. Yeah. Sorry, I realize we're kind of... Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, relevant to this. That's a, that's a nice intersection. Yeah, they demo it at the end of the year. Yeah. All right. Using my concluding statement. Yes. Um, it's my dream to have like, uh, but uh, to have like a light show on the sky. <laughs> I think that'd be cool. Thank you to all who participated in this Thought Lounge. To sign up for a Thought Lounge in your area, please visit thoughtlounge.org. Till next time, good thinking always. <laughs>